and welcome to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. I'm your host, Alan Feely, and I'm coming to direct from Seville in South Spain. Um, on today's episode, we're going to be focusing on Hungarian football. We're going to be dedicating a two-part episode to, first, the historical context, and second, the modern incarnation of this French Ferris team. They've recently qualified for the Champions League group stages for the first time in 25 years. In part one, I'm going to be speaking to the foremost expert on Hungarian football historically, Jonathan Wilson. Um, he's written 11 books, including classics like Behind the Curtain, Travels in Eastern European Football, uh, Inverting the Pyramid, The History of Football Tactics, uh, The Outsider, History of the Goalkeeper, Angel's Dirty Face, The Footballing History of Argentina, and uh, of course, the names heard long ago, how the golden age of Hungarian soccer shaped the modern game, which is his most recent uh, release. Uh, welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for being with us today. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so just to begin, um, I guess we can begin with two quotes, if that's okay with you. Um, the first one is from Harry Johnston, who was the England centre-back in 1953 when they were beaten 6-3 by Hungary. Um, he said, to me, the tragedy was the utter helplessness, being unable to do anything and to alter the grim outlook. Uh, and then to follow up with a quote from you, from the, your book, Hungary taught the world to play. We're all the proteges of Jimmy Hogan now, when the game is at its most appealing. Uh, we hear still some strain of old Budapest, of the game of the coffee houses and the grounds on the most beautiful and tragic of footballing cultures. Um, so I guess to begin with, what drew you to Hungarian football? Because you've, your, your, your catalogue is quite uh, diverse geographically. So what was the first uh, kind of spark that led you to study Hungarian football in such depth? Well, I mean, you're right. It is diverse geographically, but, it, but I mean... Everything sort of meshes together. Uh, so I, I guess I first started looking at Hungarian football properly uh, when I was doing Behind the Curtain. And obviously that 6-3 victory for Hungary at Wembley in 1953 is one of the, the sort of seismic games of the 20th century. It was England's first defeat at home against continental European opposition. I know that they'd lost to the Republic of Ireland um, in 1949. It was the first ever defeat at Wembley to foreign opposition um as in you know not scotland and also i think the manner of the defeat i mean 6-3 really flattered england they were absolutely played off a park and it, it, it was a huge shock to english football english football that sort of naively believed that it was the best in the world despite you know quite a lot of evidence to the contrary but i mean the 1950 world cup had been a disaster for england i mean they'd lost to the us but still what happened abroad somehow didn't resonate in the same way um, and even when England lost to Spain in 1929, which is the first time they'd lost to continental European opposition, they sort of went, oh, you know, it was a hot day, the pitch was dry, the ball was bouncing all over the place. This was November at Wembley. This was proper football. You know, it was a misty, cold day. The pitch was slightly damp. This was how football was meant to be played. And Hungary turn up and they're wearing these, these sort of low-slung, very light boots, not, not the kind of big sort of almost pit boots that the British footballers would wear. And they, they passed the ball around England and made England look pretty foolish. And and even England had to wake up after this and say, yeah, what we've been doing, maybe maybe that, that, that isn't relevant anymore. We do have to change. And I think you can make a very good case that the lessons learned that day, and, and Alf Ramsey was, was the right back in that team, were what lead England to a tactical revolution, which, which brings them a World Cup in, in, in 66. So Hungary was important from that point of view. But I then started to look into Hungarian football and why it had begun to play in this way. And it, it, it's, you know, England was still playing with the WM, with the, the three defenders 
the two centre halves, the two inside forwards, and the three, you have the three forwards, the, the two wingers, and the centre forward. Uh, and what Hungary did, uh, I mean, you mentioned Harry Johnson there, talking about the tragedy of it, the, the the inevitability, and he just didn't know what to do because Nando Hidakuti, the number nine who was supposed to be marking the notional centre forward, kept dropping deep, and he he didn't know whether he should follow him because if he followed him, he left a huge hole in the in the in the defence. If he didn't follow him, Hidakuti picked up the ball and nobody was near him, so he could dictate the play. And Hidakuti scored a hat trick that day. And, and that, I think, it was the first sort of real realization in English football that flexibility, the ability to, or the willingness to move out of your position, to the, the, the players shouldn't be defined by by the number on their back, by, by their position. They should be able to interchange and to, to begin to think of a game as a, 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 as a team, as sort of one flexible unit, as we consider it now. That that was the game when when English football realised that, and, and it wasn't just Hidakuti dropping deep. Uh, Hungary had also pulled one of the two wing halves deep, so it was it wasn't quite a four two four, but it was sort of halfway between the WM and the four two four. And by fifty eight, Brazil are using a full on four two four, which wins the World Cup and is enormously influential. So I then began looking looking at why Hungary had had begun to play in this way, and I, I'm not really sure there is an adequate answer as to why the game developed. In, in that way, in, in Hungary. Um, but what, what is essentially what you see happen is there's a lot of um, British bankers and, and merchants working in, in, in Budapest in sort of the 1890s onwards, and they take sport to Hungary, not just football, but also tennis, table tennis. Um, and they start to get, you know, they set up clubs, and this, this spreads, and it's... It, the, the, it, it proves very fertile ground that uh, you have this combination of two things, which I think is why Hungarian football, and I guess Austrian football as well, why, you know, why the football of Vienna and Budapest diverge from, from the British model. And it, it's and you, you know, the, the, the quote from me you had there, I, you sets out the two sides. So on the one hand, there's the, the grunt. And the grunt is the, the, the sort of vacant lot, the... Um, so, and this this is similar in Argentina. So, you know, I talk about this in Angel of the Dirty Face as well, where they're called Potreros, that you have these cities which are urbanizing rapidly. And what you then get is these spaces where houses haven't yet been built and kids go and play on these, these spaces and they're quite compact. And the pitch isn't a nice, smooth, grassy surface as you get in an English school. It's, it's uneven. And so you, your technique has to be good just to control the ball. The ball probably wouldn't even be a proper ball. It'd be some kind of bundle of rags, which again, it means your your your, your technique has to be better. Uh, often these games, you'd have, you know, 20 aside or whatever in quite a small space. So again, your first touch has to be good or you're losing the ball. There's no teacher there telling you how to play and, and stopping fouls. It's lawless. So you've got to be able to look after yourself. You've got to be physically aware. And you've got to be smart. So you got that side, which is exactly what you get in in Argentina and Uruguay, and, and to a lesser extent Brazil. The, you know that, that that the environment creates a particular type of footballer, and I think even in you know in Britain you can say something similar happens in the football of the pit villages and the back lanes of the big cities. It's got that technique heavy smartness to it, but what you also have in Vienna and Budapest is the coffee houses, and and I think this is this is a result of. Um, I guess it's just a social makeup of society. That the coffee houses are these great melting pots where all classes mix, all people mix. And so you have a, a group of people who become interested in football, 
who have been to university, who are used to thinking about things in an abstract way. And so they begin drawing diagrams. They begin uh, looking at the, the schemes of football. And, and that that's where we first get tactical diagrams, where we first get people really talking in tactical terms. Now, I'm not sure that knowledge is necessarily particularly different to what you had in Britain at the time. But it, it, in Britain, it was very instinctive and very practical and very pragmatic because the people who were putting it to practice tended to be to be workers. They weren't people who, who had been trained in, in sort of this abstract thought. In the pub, standing up as opposed to in a coffee house sitting down. Like- exactly. Yeah. And again, the environment matters. And, and so once you get these sort of theorists, then you get this really interesting fusion of a very vibrant sort of grassroots street level game and also very vibrant sort of um, sort of layer on top of that that's kind of wants to dissect it and wants to to work out what well, well, if we move this player here so if we pull our center forward deep what does that mean what does that do to to the inside force what does that do to the wingers and so that i think is why you get in, in vienna and, and budapest you get this incredibly vibrant culture and also and I, look this is entirely speculative but i i, I wonder if austria and hungary as it became at the end of the war uh i wonder if their location slap in the center of europe with this sort of great hub and there's information and ideas being exchanged constantly and your know, hungary is this, this very odd place in that post uh the 1867 settlement when it got sort of internal autonomy within austro-hungary uh hungariness is this sort of this umbrella term for this massive ethnicities so you have magyars the sort of ethnic hungarians for want of a better term you have germans you have slovaks you have croats you have jews you have romanians all mixing together, all with their different approaches, all with their slightly different backgrounds. And that that interaction of, of, of different peoples, I think, creates very dynamic and very very exciting results. For sure, yeah. Um, I, I was struck by reading the book that it reminded me of Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell because it was kind of, you know, all about the, the multifaceted kind of serendipity that led to Hungarian football developing in the way in which it did and also in the way in which it... Uh, subsequently kind of came to demise. But I should ask you about the influence of the kind of early Englishmen who ventured to Hungary, either as, you know, Edward Shire is at 17, leaving his job as a clerk in a typewriter factory in Manchester to find adventure in 1894, or the former Everton Chelsea Scottish international John Tate Robinson, or the journeyman Jimmy Hogan. And how that developed into the kind of culture of clubs within uh, Hungary in those early uh, years of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean those, those three are all hugely significant. I mean, let, let, let's take them in order. So Shires, yeah, as you say, he was a clerk in a in a typewriter factory in Manchester. He moves to Vienna uh, in uh, the early 1890s. By the early 20th century, he's decided to to move to Budapest. He's credited as the man who introduced table tennis to to, to Hungary, which is a slight odd claim to have. But he was selling typewriters fundamentally and like you know little sidelines. But he you know, he also gets involved in setting up football clubs. You know, he, he's obviously quite a good footballer. But it appears around about 1903, uh, he joins MTKR, which is one of the two big early teams. So there's MTKR and Svensvarsh, the, the two sort of early giants of, of Hungarian football. And and just to sort of give a very brief overview of who they are. MTKR is uh, perceived, and these are very, very loose terms. This is not in any sense definitive, but loosely, they're the middle-class Jewish club. And Ferenc Varos, loosely, 
are the working class German club. Now, you will find yeah, something like a quarter of all the Fenerbahce players of the time are Jewish. So it's absolutely not a hard and fast split. But that that's the sort of rough sort of split between them. Which is also, in, in, within Hungary, one of the theories for the great boom in Hungarian football is that they have this great rivalry. That they have these two teams who are in a constant arms race with each other uh, and their rivalry sort of stimulates each other to, to, to greater and greater heights. So he, he joins, Shires joins MTK. It appears he gets injured within his first season. He becomes a referee. But he also starts working with MTK, um just on the admin side. And he's instrumental in bringing John Tate Robertson uh, over to, to to be their coach. Robertson was, was a Scot. He played for Rangers. He appears to have been a, a borderline alcoholic, if not actually an alcoholic. He was Chelsea's first ever manager. So in, when Chelsea were founded in 1905, they appointed him as, as player manager. And his drinking was a problem even at Chelsea. And I think that if you read between the lines of, of the minutes of Chelsea of various AGMs, you, you understand why why they got rid of him. And the drinking became becomes a problem in Budapest, but he instills the Scottish passing game, as it was known, uh, which which seems to to fit MT Carr's self-image. You know, they're almost self-consciously middle class, that they they want to do the stylish thing, whereas Fens Fars want to do the, the hard graft. Again, these are mass stereotypes. You will find countless counterexamples, but as a rough sort of you know, self-image, MTK like to think of themselves as being very stylish. So this great passing game fits entirely with that. And then Hogan is 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 the greatest of the three. And Hogan was, as you say, a journeyman player uh, who very early got into coaching abroad. He applied and, and, and got the job to uh, to be Germany's coach at the uh, nineteen sixteen Olympics. But then when he asked, he asked for a reference from uh, the Austrian Football Federation from Ugo Meisel, who was uh, the sort of the, the head of, of the Austrian FA and, and just sort of generally ran everything in Austrian football. And he'd worked with him. And so you know, he asked Meisel for a reference. And Meisel sort of says, well, hang on. I don't, I don't want you working with Germany. You can come and work for us. So he, he goes to Vienna and then almost immediately war breaks out. He's briefly interned. And, and in the book, I'm able to, to, to track up to a point uh, what happened to him. He, you know, he was, he's jailed for a couple of months it's not entirely clear when he was released but it, it seems that, that towards the end of 1914 uh, he was released under house arrest but you know he 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 ends up there's these two brothers who are in a department store in vienna and they, they've been very involved in early football in vienna and they employ him uh to, to teach tennis to their kids and hogan's really unhappy with this he manages to get his kids back to back to burnley which is where he's from so his his, his wife and kids they go back to burnley and his wife had a kid just after she gets back to Burnley, which I guess was part of the you know, part of a concern. They didn't want her you know, being heavily pregnant in you know, in, in a, a hostile foreign city. And and then he he kind of quite mysteriously gets himself to Budapest. And it turns out that the Shires and um, this Hungarian nobleman, Baron Dieste, who'd been educated at Cambridge and loved football, who also worked with MT Carr, they managed to pull strings and got Hogan to Budapest. Now, Budapest, obviously, Hungary was also, you know, Austro-Hungary was at war with Britain. But in Budapest, the situation was much more relaxed. Uh, I think I think I'm right in saying there's only three Britons were ever interned in Budapest during the war. So it was far calmer. He takes over at MCCAR and he picks up the, the foundations that have been left by, by Robertson. And Hogan's one of the great coaches, of the, maybe the greatest coach of the first half of the 20th century. And he 
instills his passing game there, which sort of you know, builds on what's gone before. And he stays till the end of the war, but his legacy remains really right up to the Second World War. Well, well. Um, and then also I want to ask you about uh, MTK's uh, tour of Austria and Germany in the summer of 1919. What I liked about the book was that you can manage to weave the socio-political history of Hungary um, very well into the history of football without kind of letting it take over. But obviously this kind of, you know, the interwar period there was quite tumultuous. You had uh, the tour of Austria and Germany in that summer, but then you had Hungary's declaration of independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire to form an independent republic the previous November 1918. And then you also had Bela Kuhn taking over in March uh, 1919, uh, which led to kind of maybe the red terror, you could say. Well, I just wanted to ask you, what was the significance of that tour, both in terms of the way they exuded their style, but also in the way it led to kind of maybe a changing of course in terms of Hungarian football? Yeah, I mean, they, that, that tour, I think, was when people first realised Hungarian football was really properly good. I mean, Austrian football, football in Austria sort of starts about a decade near enough before it starts in Hungary. And so there's you know, a huge rivalry, obviously. And Austria really had the edge up until around about 1910, 1911. But it, it, it's sort of this, this tour of 1919 that makes it really obvious that Budapest football is, has kicked on. Um, but as you say, it was... It was um, it was political and economic chaos in Hungary that, you, first of all, you get um, a pretty hopeless count who takes over and, and disbands the army. I mean, he was a pacifist, so up to a point, fair enough, but don't disband the army when all the countries around you still have their armies and are fully on a war mode. So chunks of Hungary just getting bitten off all over the place. Um and, and, you know, the, the boundaries are, are not sort of fixed because this is the end of Austro-Hungary. So everybody's haggling for, you know, which bit of land should belong to whom. So, uh, you know, you, you have the Treaty of Trianon, uh, you're one of the treaties alongside Versailles that concludes the First World War. And, and that, you know, it's still bitterly disputed now in Hungary. And, you know, one of the reasons for Viktor Orban's popularity and, you know, his, his success among nationalists is his sort of campaign against Trianon which hands over, for instance, Transylvania to Romania. Uh, Slovakia becomes part of, of Czechoslovakia. So you've got all that going on. You then get Belakun and, and the, the uh, communist takeover and, and the Red Terror, uh, where yeah, nationalists are, are persecuted. And then that's, that's followed by a nationalist backlash and the White Terror, which is um, essentially blames Jews, You know the, the classic backstabber myth. Uh, for for defeat in the First World War, and and that's the first real wave of uh, of I don't want to say anti-Semitism didn't exist in Hungary before because it absolutely did. But this is the first sort of real wave of it. Uh, and 1920, you get the numerous Clausus Law, which uh, stipulated in certain key professions, so the law, medicine, university lecturing, the theatre, um, journalism that within certain parameters, the, the, the makeup of those professions had to match the ethnic makeup of the population as a whole, which was specifically targeted at reducing Jewish influence in those professions. But sort of, I mean, everything sort of settles down by the early 1920s, but there's still economic and political chaos. So everybody who can get out is trying to get out. And this 1919 tour is the first sign of that. The players is dropping out all the time. They go and play in Vienna and, you know, a couple of players are signed by Wiener Amatura, then they go to Nuremberg, and a couple of players are signed by Nuremberg. And, and so the squad comes back, about half a number of players who left. 
just because if you know if an Austrian club's buying you, you're getting probably three or four times as much money as you're getting back in Budapest. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I was also very much struck by the influence that um, Hungarians had in Brazilian football, but South American football as a whole, but a lot of it seemed to begin in Brazil. Um, for instance, Imre Herschel in 1929 and Dari Kirshner in 1937. I wonder if you could just tell me a bit about that, about their influence and how that influence kind of spread through translators, but also through Uruguay and Argentina and kind of how it kind of kickstarted this trend of Hungarian football being exported and kind of spreading all over the world. Yeah, I mean, Herschel's sort of the, he was sort of my white whale. It kind of, I came across him doing Inventing the Pyramid. Um, well, okay, I'll, I'll tell you how it came about. It's probably the easiest way of doing it. So the the, the most significant new fact I turned up, but for want of a better way of phrasing it, in Inverting the Pyramid, is in Brazil, the story here again and again and again is, yeah, this 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 bloke turns up, uh, Dori Krushner, they called him, uh, in 1936, takes over Flamengo, and he ch- completely changes how they play. You know, he, he starts the well. He he shifts from a two three five to a WM. I guess is the easiest way of putting it. Um, and it's wildly controversial, and he ends up getting sacked after ten months. But his his assistant Flavio Costa, who who'd been very sceptical and had, had sort of briefed against him in the press, and took advantage of the fact that the Kushner didn't speak um, didn't speak Portuguese. Yeah, he he, he sort of. Gradually, as the ten months go by, he's he's won over by by um, Kushner's ideas, and so he takes a WM, he slightly tweaks it, and that that's where you get the movement towards the forty-four. So that's m- enormously significant. But nobody in Brazil knew who this this bloke Kushner was, and they say, "Well, we think he's Central European by the name, uh, probably a Jewish name." And it was a, it was a mate of mine in Hungary who said, "Are you sure it's Kushner, not Kushner?" And the R and the U had been transposed somehow. And as soon as we looked up Kushner, finally he played, we won five caps of Hungary, he played for MTK, uh, I think under Robertson, I think that's true, um, but certainly uh, before Robertson arrived. But I think he was still there under Robertson. He ended up in, uh, I can't remember the year, but shortly before the war, he goes and joins his team. Um, well, Oradea is, is the modern name of the city in, in Romania. Orot would, would be the Hungarian for it. And they're sort of a professional team. They're, like, they're not part of the league. They're sort of this touring professional team. He would accept money to go go and put on exhibitions. And he, he then worked under Hogan at, at, at MTK as a sort of an assistant coach and replaced him at the end of the war when Hogan went back to, to Britain. And he, he then had a, an enormously successful influential career in Germany and in Switzerland. And in Switzerland, he became a sort of incredible figure who if your club was running out of money, you went to him and he, he'd sort it out for you. He'd, you know, he'd, he'd find a bank to loan you the cash. He, he was this sort of incredible you know, eminence who, who, who kind of uh, helped, just helped the development of football throughout throughout Germany and Switzerland. And then he gets this job offered in, from Flamengo and it's still not entirely clear how that ever came about. And I guess maybe reading between the lines, he'd he'd sort of, He'd seen the way that Europe was going; that the, the the shift to the right made Europe pretty pretty unsafe for him as a as a high profile Jew, and so he goes. He went to Flamengo, and uh, he, he after Flamengo he coached Botafogo briefly, and then he he died of a virus in 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 forty or forty one. I can't remember. Um, so yeah, I'd found him, and, and I was quite confident in in his role, and and, and uh, you know nobody in Brazil doubted his his importance, 
And we're putting the you know, the two together to prove that yeah, Hogan was one removed from what happened in Brazil. That sort of made the whole sort of family tree of, of tactics sort of fit together. You know, suddenly it was like, okay, that's how we get from there to there. And that for me is by far the most important bit of, of Invoking the Pyramid, making that link, which I, as far as I'm aware, nobody ever made before. But what then frustrated me was I knew that the, the, the equivalent figure had to exist in Argentina as well. And I couldn't work mm. out who it was. And then I found the guy called Emerico Herschel, as they called him, uh, which is a the Hispanicization of Imre Herschel. But I, I didn't didn't really realize he was Hungarian. I didn't really know anything about him. And so if you look if you look at the 2008 edition of Inventing the Pyramid, the first one, I, I just referred to him as Emerico, and I don't go into any detail about him. By the 2018 edition, I filled in the gaps. Uh, but it was only really in, in a name so long ago where I really filled in the gaps. Uh, and he also is in Angels of the Dirty Faces, where I did you know, proper, you know, that, that's where I, I probably began to sort of uncover the myth. And um, by, by complete coincidence, uh, this must have been in the build-up to the 2014 World Cup. There was a book came out in Uruguay about Uruguay's success in the 1950 World Cup. Uh, which is you know it also been in Brazil, so you know they bring it out for 2014, and they refer to the influence of Herschel over over the national team, and they also refer to him being a match fixer, and this complete coincidence, uh, a, a friend of mine in Argentina was approached by by a woman who said, "I've just seen this book in Uruguay, and they say my dad's a match fixer. Can we sue them?" Wow! And my mate was a football historian, and this was Imre Herschel's daughter. And he said, is this the bloke you keep going on about? Yeah, this is the bloke I keep going on about. And so I got in touch with with her, uh, Gabriella, and she was uh, the child of his second marriage. So I think he was 54 when she was born. And so she must be 65 or 66 now. And she's I think she's still a practicing psychoanalyst in, in Buenos Aires. And so I spoke to her and she had all these cuttings about her dad and all these stories about her dad. And I quickly realized that the stories that he'd been telling the Argentinian press, that he played for Ferenc Varos and he played for Hakuach and he played for Racing Club of Paris, he played for Spotlight, it's all nonsense. He never played for any of them. And I just kept digging, 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 and there was nothing there. And he had no football heritage whatsoever until he turns up in Sao Paulo in 1929 and I was able to find like his his check in details at an immigrants hostel in in Chantos in the in the in the port of of São Paulo, uh, and if I found the, the check in details, so we know exactly when he arrived. And he claims he was a butcher in that in his under profession. He says butcher doesn't say football coach. He says butcher, and he also claimed to be Catholic and he was Jewish. Which I, I guess you know if you're fleeing anti semitism and fascism in Europe, I, I guess that makes sense to. To, to disguise that. And he then, it turns out, he he met uh, Bela Gutmann, the, the, the great uh, Hungarian centre-half, and then then a you know, great coach, won the European Cup twice at Benfica. Uh, he met him, he he, went, he, uh, he he was playing for Hakoach, who were this, they were, they'd, they'd been a um, pro-Zionist team in Vienna. They won the Austrian League in 1925, but they, they, they were there specifically to raise awareness and funds for Zionism. And they'd done a tour uh, the US in 28, I think it was the first tour. And loads of them end up staying in New York um, because they just got offered huge sums of money to, to stay and play professionally there. 
And the US League, I think the US football went professional in 21. I think it's the first professional league. But basically, until the Wall Street crash, there's you know, a thriving professional league uh, in the US. And, and after the crash, they lose money. So they go on this tour down the east coast of, of South America to try and raise funds. And so when they're in Sao Paulo, Hirschel goes to Gutman, knocks on his hotel room door and says, look, I've just arrived. I've got nothing. You're a Budapest Jew. I'm a Budapest Jew. Can you, can you help me out? And Gutman says, well, what do you do? And he went, oh, look, I, I, I think I gave uh, good massages. And so Gutman says, okay, give me a massage. He takes his shirt off, gives him a massage. And Gutman says it's the best massage he's ever had. So he gets taken on by Hakuak as a masseur. But he's a butcher. He's not a masseur. But he, he happens to, you know, to, to be functional as a, as a masseur. And so they, they go down to Montevideo. They go to Buenos Aires. And in Buenos Aires, Hakuak said, I'm not really sorry, but we've run out of money. We, we can't, you're going to have to stay here. We can't keep paying you. And so he stays in Buenos Aires. This is 1929. And uh, two and a bit years later, he manages to blag himself a job with Gymnasia, Himnazia uh, La Plata, saying that he's been a player and a coach with Fakok, which just wasn't true. He was a part-time masseur. And then, according to Gutman, and Gutman, you've got to remember, is an, is an absolute arch bullshitter, so take this with a big pinch of salt. But he says that Herschel's aim was to get himself sacked so he could get a payoff that he'd use to get his wife and son over to, to Argentina. And sure enough, you look at his lineups, and he suddenly drops loads of kind of well-known players and starts picking kids. And they, they start the season really badly. I can't remember the exact details, but really bad start of the season. But then they finish the season brilliantly. And so, you know, it, 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 it's like the plot of the producers, that he's, he, he's tried to fail, but it's inadvertently happened on something that, that works. And he's got his incredibly successful team. I mean, next year, so this is 33, um, or it might be 32. Anyway, the next year, uh, with five games a season to go, they're clear at the top of the league. And this is incredible. You know, this just doesn't happen in Argentina. Himnazi do not win the league. You know, it's a stitch up with the, the five big teams, the five grandes, at which, sure enough, refereeing decisions start to go against them and, and they end up not winning the league. But even the Argentinian sports press, which is normally pretty partisan, sort of acknowledge that, yeah, this wasn't really kind of... This wasn't really right. They deserve to win the title. And off the back of this, he gets a job at River Plate. He wins a double there in 36. He, he, he does. It is true. He, he ends up getting, um, getting a ban for match-fixing uh, in 1940. And you know, the minutes are there in, in, at AFRA, the Argentine Football Association, explaining how he tried to pay off a, a goalkeeper. He, he wasn't coaching at the time. He was just sort of an intermediary. And so he gets exiled. He goes to, I think, to Cruzeiro. But anyway, he goes back to Brazil. And then he ends up being taken on in, in Uruguay and um, becomes coach of Peñarol. He sort of was a de facto coach for the national team for a while, but it was always unofficial because the rivalry between Peñarol and Nacional is such you can't appoint the coach of one to the national team because the other one kicks off. So they never gave him a job properly. So he loses the job to uh, Juan Lopez just before the World Cup. Um, and Lopez leads him to the World Cup. But everybody sort of in that squad accepts that Lopez was a figurehead and the person who ran it was Abdullio Varela, the, the, the captain. And Varela was, was Herschel's captain at, at Peñarol. And Varela completely accepts that it was it was Herschel's influence that, that led to the tactical changes when they, they get the win against Brazil in the, in the final game. So, you know, so I've been, I, 
been chasing Herschel for for years. It just none of this made any sense. So who was he? This this guy just turns up in 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 San Paulo in 1929. And I, I I found his birth certificate. Or well, to be completely clear, I paid four researchers, one of whom found his birth certificate in in uh, Apostog, which is a village about uh, 40, 50 miles south of Budapest. Um, so I you know, found, found that. Uh, I, I did a search, and, and happily all Hungarian newspapers have been digitized, which is an amazing bit of archival work. <laughs> uh, so I was able, even though I don't speak Hungarian, I was able to, to just do a search for him. And sure enough, he appears twice, and twice only, in the Hungarian papers. Oh, sorry, I should say, having, having found his birth certificate, uh, was able to kind of trace his who his father was, who his who his mother was, uh, his brothers. Um, so his elder brother died in the First World War. Oh, so this is the other detail I got from Gabriella. Sorry, I should have said this. He, you know, as I said to her, well, you know, what did he say about his past? Well, what did he say about his time before he came to South America? And she was, oh, he never really talked about it. I said, but you know, when he was shaving, I, I used to, you know, he had his shirt off, and I used to see that he had. Um, a bullet hole in his wrist and shrapnel wounds on his chest. And it, it, he got those in the first world war. And he, he, I think his two elder brothers have both signed up to fight for a Zionist regiment initially under British command in Palestine. So fighting against the Ottomans in Palestine. And he, you know, he, he'd been shot and he, 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 uh, a grenade attack leaves him with this shrapnel in his chest. So he's this kind of war hero as well, as well as everything else. Uh, as well as being this brilliant coach, this bluffer, this sort of con man who gets himself a job, this masseur, this match fixer. So yeah, he appears in the, in the Budapest press twice and twice only. Once is details of his marriage. And the other time is in 1928, he, his, his uncles owned uh, a salami shop, a, a factory and shop. And uh, in 1928, there's this uh, long feature where a load of journalists go to the factory and they get shown around all this new equipment for making salami that that they've just installed. And the guy who shows them around the factory is Imre Herschel. So this 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 idea of him being a butcher, I mean, maybe he was a salami salesman, maybe he was a butcher, but definitely meat production was his job. And he was never a coach. And so then, through actually an incredible coincidence, one of my researchers... And this was one of the most incredible <laughs> serendipitous nights I've ever had writing a book. Uh, one of the researchers who've been going through the archives for, for ages and ages and ages uh, finds the details of his wife. So, so we, 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 get, we get her maiden name and we, we were able to work out who she is. And uh, she was called Elizabeth Blyer, was her maiden name. And I, I don't even sure her maiden name was in the newspaper report about her. But anyway, once you've got a maiden name, I think, well, well, I can go through passenger manifests to find out when she goes across to South America. And I, I'd, I'd saved loads. I downloaded a load of these on my laptop. And, I, I opened, and I've been carrying these around for like a decade because I, I, you know, I sort of thought they might come in useful. And uh, I, was, I was in my hotel room in Budapest and I opened the laptop and I, I clicked on the first of these. I must have had, I don't know, dozens of these passenger manifests. I click on the first one and the very first name on the first one I downloaded was Blya Erzabet. She was the first one on the list. Wow. And so we knew then exactly when she'd gone across. Now, this creates problems with Gabriella because she is not Gabriella's mother. 
Herschel married again in 1939. Now, I can't find any record of any divorce. I can't find any record of, of a... Well, in fact, I know that, that, that Elizabeth Bly didn't die in Argentina because um, her son, and her son with, with Imre, uh, Peter, died of a lung disease in, I think, 1940, maybe 1941. And I, I've, I've been to his grave. I found the grave. And she's also in that grave. Uh, and we we know uh, there's a record of, um, in 1945, when Budapest was liberated, there was a, a register made of all surviving Jews because you know, Hungarian Holocaust have been horrific. You know, 800,000 Jews died in just over three months. And so they made a record of those who did survive. And she's on that record of survivors. So we, we knew that she'd been back in Budapest during the war. And we knew that Peter had died in Budapest. So at some point between, I think, 32 she went over, between 32 and 1940, she obviously went back to, to Hungary. But I haven't been able to find out when that happened. I think we did find um, a rental agreement that she'd signed in 1939. So I think we know it's between 32 and 39. So, I mean, again, this is totally speculative, but my guess would be she goes to Argentina, thinks that yeah, you know, she doesn't speak the language, decides this isn't for her, and she says to him, Ray, I think we should go home. And he sort of thinks, well, over here, I'm one of the greatest football coaches in the world. Back there, I'm a salami salesman. If it's all the same to you, love, I'll stay here. But she decides to go back with with her son, um, and then he whether they formally divorced or not, he ends up remarrying in thirty nine, and he he marries a Jewish refugee, and he's work, he works for charity helping Jews fleeing Europe to to settle in 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 Argentina, and you know, he 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 meets Gabriella's mother through that and, and marries her. Well, well, I found it fascinating how you were kind of saying in the book that maybe uh, the influence that he had on. Uruguay's success in the World Cup against Brazil was maybe underplayed because it didn't fit the kind of popular narrative that it was a Uruguayan success. So I was wondering kind of what was, do you think, his influence in that success specifically and also what was his influence on the kind of Jogo Bonito Brazilian mentality of football? Well, I mean, the mentality aspect, I think, is slightly different. Well, OK, let me, let me answer the question about the World Cup first. So in, in that last game, uh, when... Because, you know, it was, it's a, it was a group group system uh, the end of that World Cup. So Brazil go into the, the, the final game into Uruguay needing a draw at the Maracanã in front of 200,000. And Uruguay, rather than playing um, the, you know, the, the way they'd usually play, they, they play what's, what's essentially a 4-3-3. That they pull Varela back to be a, be a sweeper, three defenders in front of him, three deep-lying midfielders, and then two wingers and centre-forward. And that was something completely new. Yeah, you know, that that hadn't just hadn't happened in in South America till till that moment, and and Varela said that that was one of Herschel's ideas that when they were playing a team they they perceived to be better than them or a team that they thought would dominate possession, that was how they would play. So there's a very direct tactical influence in that regard. But but yeah, you you're right. You know that 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 triumph was, I would quite totally understandable. Any country would do it. That that triumph was sold as, yeah, plucky little Uruguay, um, and Uruguay, Uruguay. Don't forget hadn't played in a World Cup since they'd previously won it in 1930. They hadn't gone to 34 or 38. So, yeah, for them, it was just a continuation of what happened in, in 1930, which absolutely was a pure Uruguayan triumph. So, you know, you, you can completely see why they want to portray that as as our little nation and our sort of innate characteristics. Uh, La Gara Charua, as they call it, the, the Charua, which is a, 
indigenous tribe view of Guay who had absolutely nothing to do with football, but if you're trying to hide colonialism, it's a good way to do it. And Gara, claw, this sort of streetwiseness, this toughness, this smartness. And, and Herschel clearly has no, Hungarian Jew has no part in that. So I, I can see completely why that was occluded. And I can also see why Varela didn't really talk about it until afterwards. I mean, Varela is quite happy for people to go, oh, hang on, you're the genius who made this happen. He doesn't want to be going, well, it's this other guy. So that's totally reasonable and understandable. Um, In terms of influence over Brazil, I mean, it's it's, it's Kushner rather than than Herschel. But again, it's introducing the WM into an environment where, where it's never been seen before. And 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 they, you know, it was very controversial at, at Flamengo. They, they, their great player was Fausto dos Santos, who was a, a centre half in the old-fashioned term of centre half. So in a, in a two-three-five, he was a central player in the three. So his job was very much as a creator rather than as a defender. You know, he was the person who linked everything together. And, and uh, Kushner wanted him to play much deeper as a, as a European-style centre half, you know, which wouldn't have been the same as as a as a British or, or Irish-style centre half as a sort of an overcoat for the forward, as they used to call them, sort of, you know, just a big, strong, a Shane Duffy type, if you will. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's meant to be a, it's a European idea. It was still a ball-playing uh, defender, but, but somebody who, who, who sat the, and, and made sure the opposition centre forward didn't, didn't, get a, didn't get a kick. And if I said Santos, sort of was like, well, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a glory boy. I'm a creator. I'm not going to do that. And so there was a huge row, and eventually the club president said, "No, look, I pay your wages. You do this." And it turned out he had tuberculosis anyway. So there's all, there's now sort of all these theories that that maybe Kirshen just decided, you know, this guy couldn't run sufficiently playing midfield, so that's why he got him to play deep when he could have played him as an inside forward or as a as a wing half. So anyway, the shape shifts from two three five to three two two three, and when Flavio Costa takes over, Flavio Costa. Because he's been uh, criticizing Kushner in the press all the time and saying, "Oh, these ideas—they—they, you know—they've got no place here. They, you know, this is just weird European sophistication. They've got no place in Brazil." And you know, he, he's come to the conclusion actually they do have a place, and actually they're working. Uh, and he, he decides he—you he, know—he can't admit this, so he says, "Oh well, I've come up with my new my own system, and I call it the Diag- diagonal." And so what he did was the if you, you know so if you imagine the three two two three so you got that square in the middle the two wing halves and the two inside forwards and he just tilted it so one of the wing halves played slightly deeper and one of the inside forwards played slightly higher up and so that's that's sort of a halfway house between a WM and a four two four so if you imagine that that three two two three but one of the lower line of a two is has dropped back towards the, 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 the defensive three, and one of the more advanced line of two has gone forward towards the attacking three. You keep pushing them, and you go from three, three, two, two, three to four, two, four. And when the four, two, four comes in, that changes everything, because suddenly old-fashioned wingers don't work. It's got a fullback right up against them all the time, and also those fullbacks can start advancing as a space in front of them. So if they've got the beating of their winger. They can go forward. So by '58, uh, Brazil have, have particularly in, in Milton Santos, a very attacking left back, which people haven't seen before, and that changes the angles of attack. It, it makes the whole game much more fluid. Jalma Santos on the right did that to a slightly lesser extent, and and then and so Milton Santos is is in this sort of first wave of attacking fullbacks, and I think you probably say there are three great pioneers of the attacking fullback. They're all left backs for whatever reason. 
uh, Nilton Santos of Brazil, Chiquinho Fichetti of, of Italy, and Silvio Marcellini of, of Argentina. And, and so that that is a direct, well, direct. I mean, there's one stage removed from what Kushner introduced. Yeah, you know for sure. Um, another thing that was very interested by was the something you touched on earlier slightly. It was kind of the struggle of the Jewish Hungarian footballers during the Holocaust, because obviously we mentioned some earlier who had either the foresight or the luck, however you look at it, to kind of escape before the kind of wave hit. But then there was obviously many who uh, who didn't who weren't that fortunate. So I just want to ask you, how was it to deal with? you know, not letting that take over the book, but also giving it the kind of respect it deserved and also the kind of specific roles of Gino Conrad and Erno Erbstein. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, that's the middle section of the book. The book's in three sections, pre-war, war, post-war. And the middle section of the book, when I, when, you know, when I, when I started writing it, uh, I was sort of trying to kind of create some narrative. But in the end, I decided I just can't do it. You, you, you know, all you can do is is present these little snapshots of, of horror, essentially, and, and 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 heroism in some cases, and and so the middle part of the book is just these these kind of a series of these quite brief vignettes of you know characters we've already met in many cases, and what happened to them, and and, and yeah, luck plays a huge part of it. So you, I mean, you've got the case of Erno Epstein, who you know he, he he'd been working in Italy uh, when the Nuremberg laws are passed, which I mean he has to get out. And he, he managed to get a job in, in the Netherlands and he has to get a train through Germany to get there. And he goes with his family and they, they get to the border at Cleves and they can't get across the border. And they end up um, staying in what was called the Jew house, this sort of an old hotel where, where all the Jews of the area were, were sort of corralled um, in, in pretty horrific conditions. Uh, and that actually saved his life because if you, if you look at um, Opad Weiss, who was hugely successful as a coach in Italy, still the youngest ever coach to win Serie A. He was the first foreign coach to win Serie A. Uh, he won Serie A with, with, with two different teams, with, with Inter and with, with Bologna. And when when he left, he he, he also you know, was forced to leave Italy. He, he went to Paris. And he, he then got a job in the Netherlands. And he, he was able to get in the Netherlands because he was going across... Yeah, um, you know, wasn't going across the German border, and he was, you know, he, he was picked up by the Gestapo and sent to Auschwitz and and, and died. Whereas Erbstein was able, using his contacts, was able to get back to Budapest. And although he he did eventually end up in a in a in a camp, he was never, you know, he was never sent to to one of the death camps. He was in a labor camp, and and, and actually not for very long. He managed to to, to to hide for, for a long, long time. So, yeah, I mean, those stories are, I mean, the story of Vice particularly is just horrific because, you know, the details of it are all there, you know, the letters that, that his son sent to a classmate, sent from Paris back to uh, Trieste, he was working in at the time. And and those letters we, we have, and, you know, the the bureaucracy of, of him being deported initially to a, to a transit camp uh, Vesterbork, which is where Anne Frank was held as well. So we, all those details are there. We know exactly how many other Jews were on the train. We know exactly what time it left. And little details, like like they were made to buy their own tickets. I mean, I, I know, yeah, I know. Compared to the Greater Harbor, that's nothing. But I don't know. Somehow, the, the inhumanity of that just adds kind of an extra layer of, of, of tragedy. 
and yeah, we know we know that um, when they arrived in in Poland, and we know his wife and two kids were uh, were taken to Birkenau and were killed straight away, and we know that, that he survived for you know, working as a slave labourer for for several months before before eventually it was you know lack of food, exhaustion, cold uh, overwhelmed him. So there's you know all those details are there, and then uh, Conrad, you asked about. Well, yeah, there's a two Conrad brothers, Callum and Conrad, who I think is probably the better player, and, and he was he was able to get out to Sweden and he coached in Sweden. But he was owning cinemas in Berlin even in the late thirties, which seems extraordinary. And his his, his brother uh, Jena, I mean, that's a, you know an astonishing story of of, of their flight. He, he was coaching Nuremberg and was essentially driven out by a campaign. This is sort of late thirties, driven out by a campaign by by the Nazi paper. And his daughter is an amazing woman. She's still alive, ninety or ninety-one now. And I mean, when I spoke to her, which is what two years ago, she was she was still practicing as a lawyer. She only qualifies lawyer at age seventy-two, I think. Wow. She'd been a journalist before that, wrote a best-selling novel. Amazing woman. But her story of their flight to to Vienna, and you know, they they, they were quite a wealthy family. They were well-to-do family, and, and her grandmother, she owned cinemas, but she also sort of was a. Uh, what, what, would be, what would the word be? She sort of um, uh, was like sort of an investor in cinema and, and, in, and in filmmakers. So she was a good friend of Otto Preminger, the you know, the great director. Um, he did St. Joan, and he he also played Mister Freeze in the nineteen sixties Batman films. But yeah, <laughs> yeah let, 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 let's let's remember him for for directing St. Joan, which I think I think did win an Oscar, didn't it? Um, for best director, maybe. Anyway. Yeah, famous film, uh, the one with Ingrid Bergman, and uh, yeah, they, they they fled initially to France. He he won the cup in, in France, and then sort of had to flee because they realised that the the invasion was coming. Was it with Lille? Uh, with Lille, yeah, that's right, yeah. And, and yeah, they go down through Spain and they go into Portugal. And uh, Evelyn, the granddaughter, she remembers. Well, sorry, she she remembered in in Vienna that you know, having. Having always sort of thought of her grandmother as this very sort of grand lady, how she was you know, treated like dirt by by people who'd, who'd formerly been her servants, you know, because she was Jewish, and the sort of the the, the, the sort of humiliations, the, the day to day humiliations that uh, the Jews went through, and then yeah, they end up in Lisbon, sort of desperately trying to catch a boat across the Atlantic, and eventually they they managed to get passage on a on a boat that was exporting cork, and and they they flee to to the US. And uh, her her father, Yena, who has been a very very good player and a, you know really good record as a coach, and he gives up football entirely. You know, he just can't face doing it in the US. He you know he's he's lost his his love for it. But I mean, you know, one of the things um, that I, you know I wanted to sort of make clear in the book, and, and you know, you got to be very careful how you say it because there's a danger of downplaying things you don't mean to downplay. Um, and you know, there's, there's not like there's some kind of league table this kind of thing. But I, I think it's very easy to overlook the suffering of ordinary Hungarians. And so uh, Istvan Tort, I was very keen to tell his story. And he, he wasn't Jewish. Uh, he he was a great goal scorer for Fernsvarsh. If, you know, if you go to Fernsvarsh Stadium now, there's, there's I think, at least two huge photographs of him on the wall. You know, he scored hundreds of goals for them. And you know, very short player, but but clearly kind of, was quick, a short stocky forward, but was clearly quick, kind of 
you made the right runs, a great finisher. Um, seems to have been sort of this uh, great raconteur. You know, he, he did theatrical performances where he played the piano and played the mouth organ, and, and, and he became a great coach. And he ends up with Geza Curtis, who, who and he, he, he works in Italy as well, and Geza Curtis had gone to Italy far earlier, and Curtis sort of became a coach who was a specialist in getting teams promoted at Serie B. So he got four different teams promoted. He also coached either Roma or Lazio, I can't remember which one. But, you know, he coached high-level teams and was living in Rome. And then they went, when the war begins, they go back. They go back to Budapest. And and Budapest in the first, up until, until the German invasion in, in 43, was actually relatively safe, even for Jews. It, you know, they, they they were restricted. There were laws against them. But, but you know, if you talk to uh, Susanna Epstein, his, his daughter, she says that their quality of life was better in Budapest than it had been in, in Turin. So that they, they were able within certain parameters, live a fairly normal life until the German invasion. And, and Curtis had lived next door to an American, an American of Hungarian descent in, in Rome. And the the Americans parachute in to OSS, so the foreign of the CIA, two OSS agents, one of whom is this guy, Paul Kovash, who'd lived next door to Curtis. And they're sort of there to coordinate resistance. And... Um, Curtis and and Tort and a group of other sportsmen, including very famous footballers, I mean, um, uh, uh, Schoffer, um, who was you know, the great goal scorer of the, the 1910s. He was part of it as well, um, Alfred Schoffer. And Tort has got himself a job at the Admiralty and he's able to forge ID papers. And so he, you know, he forges them for Jews and communists that he knows. Uh, so that if they ever are approached by the authorities, they they can, you know, they can get away. And, and Sukovash contacts Curtis, and, and they they start working for the US, working for US intelligence, and they're they're informing on troop movements, they're putting in plans in place to protect the bridges because they know there's a, you know the Soviets are closing in on the east, so they know that the Germans are going to have to retreat, and they suspect that they'll try and blow up the bridges, so they want to try and protect the bridges, partly for historic reasons, but also just for strategic re- reasons, you know, you obviously need to get across the river. And and then December 44, Kovash, the, the OSS agent, who's fallen in love with, with a woman called Mary Benny, who's a local prostitute, and he, he gets pissed and tells her that he's an American agent. And she and she tells a pimp, and the pimp tells the, um, the Arrow Cross, who are the local fascists, and they come around and pick him up and torture him. And, uh, well... He either reveals them to torture the names of other people in, in his group or or they find a, a notebook where he's written it down. There's two different versions of that. And so you've got this incredible thing that um, Geza Curtis, is, he's a coach at the time of Wiepest. Now, Entekar had been disbanded at, at the onset of war because they're, they're you know, seen as being a Jewish team. Um, so Wiepest, who'd always been the third team of, of Budapest, they become the big rivals of Hans Fausch. And they've got to... So, so, Curtis is, is the, the coach of, of Wiepesh, and they've got a game against Fernand Fawash on the Saturday. And I, I think it's the the Wednesday morning he gives a press conference looking ahead to this game, which is one of the incredible things. that uh, I, did, I did a piece for The Observer about this earlier this year where I touched on it briefly. Uh, you're in relation to football and the pandemic and everything. The football just went on in occupied Hungary. They like, never stopped. It just... And, and like... Even when the fascists are fully in control, 
you have a, a trade union team wins the league twice. I mean, it's just like <laughs> the whole thing just, just doesn't make any sense. But anyway, he gives this press conference and it's a, the most banal quotes. You know, the quotes come out on the Thursday, on the Friday morning. And they, they are absolute bog standard, boring football manager quotes of, of course, we're going to be ready. This is a massive game. And and so, yeah, they've got an injury. And, well, I'll, I'll right back and play in midfield. We do, he's done that before. We're not worried about that. It, it is the most banal stuff. And that night, he's picked up by the Gestapo. And so by the time his quotes come out, he's already been with the Gestapo for 36 hours. It sounds like almost before a midweek Premier League fixture. Yeah, exactly. Exactly like that. And um, the two of them, Tort and Curtis, uh, they end up... The, the prison where they're being held gets get shelled by the by the Russians, by the Soviets. And so they get moved to the Ministry of the Interior, which was, if anybody's been to Budapest, the, the castle on the hill that overlooks the river, that was the Ministry of the Interior at the time. And they were held in the in the sort of in the cellars there. And on February the sixth, nineteen forty five, so thirteen years a day before Munich, uh, as the Germans retreat, they execute about a third of the prisoners, and those two are, are executed. And but because the the Soviet shelling is so heavy, the courtyard where they were, they were buried in the shallow grave is covered over by rubble. So it's only three months later that the bodies are found. And so Tut's wife uh, has a sort of a, a, a breakdown because she doesn't know what's happened to her husband, and she keeps going to the Ministry of the Interior after the you know, after the Soviet takeover, saying, "Where's my husband? Where's my husband? Where's my husband?" And eventually, they say, Look, we found a body, or we found a number of bodies. Can you come and have a look? And the only way she was able to identify him was his glasses were in his inside pocket. And his grandson still has those glasses. And I, you know, I went and interviewed the grandson and he was he was showing me all this memorabilia of his of his grandfather. And you know, there's a pair of boots, there's a whistle, there's all these badges and medals he's won and stuff. And it's all great, interesting stuff. And then, you know, he just hands me this silver cigarette case, which had been presented to, to him. I think when he was Weepesh coach in the late 30s to celebrate them winning the title or whatever, and it, it rattled and I opened it and inside were, were these broken glasses that had been found in his pocket. And that was an extraordinary moment. Well, how did it feel when you saw that? Were you kind of just thinking? Oh, it, it's just, yeah, because, you know, it's one of those things of kind of, I, I just hadn't been expecting it. The, the other stuff had all been kind of, quote unquote, like normal, normal football memorabilia. And the thing is, I saw them, and like my brain knew immediately what it was, but I said something I couldn't articulate it straight away. And it, you know, it's just one of those things where you, yeah, it's like being punched in the pit of the stomach. It's kind of, and yeah, you know, it's it's such a, I don't know, there's something so, so intimate about a pair of broken glasses, and to know that they'd been in the in the pocket of a man when he was shot. It's, it really is a story that's stranger than fiction, isn't it? Like it's kind of if, if it was written as fiction, you wouldn't believe it. Literally, like. yeah, completely, completely. Yeah. yeah, I was also fascinated by the kind of it's an oversimplification, but on my part, but the kind of idea of the communist regime kind of gave Hungarian football one last golden age, but then simultaneously contributed to the conditions and circumstances that led to its kind of you know real demise, and um, so. I want to ask you with that as well as the role of uh, Gustav uh, Sebes and, you know, kind of that period, you know, with the friendlies against England in 53 and 54 when they beat them 7-1 in Budapest. 
leading up to the experiences against Brazil, Uruguay and West Germany in the 1954 World Cup where they lost in the final and then also the 1956 Hungarian uprising before maybe kind of just touching on the kind of, you know, the gravity of the 1962 European Cup final uh, from a Hungarian point of view. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So this is, the, yeah, this is the final third of the book. Um, so, so I mean, MTK have been disbanded by, by the fascist regime at the start of the war. And they you know, they do reform. And, and, and that, that story is actually pretty moving as well, that people come out of the out of the ghetto. And again, you know, interviewing them is a hugely emotional, you know, hugely moving thing. And they 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 you know they put Endicar back together, and it wasn't just a football club; it was a you know boxer club and a wrestling club, and a, you know generals. But you know the T stands for Torna, which is gymnastics. So you know they, they they put the club back together, but you know it's it's not it's not what it was. You know the, the the Jewish element has been ripped out, which is you know the heart of it. And then the same happens to I mean the same; it's not the same, but it's a similar impact on Ferns Farish that in 1949 the, the communist authorities decide to nationalise sport, and they have this idea which. Is not totally unreasonable because they've, they'd seen Italy had been very successful in the 30s with a team based almost entirely on Juventus. And yeah, we've seen you know, subsequent teams when they're based on one club side, so Spain on Barcelona or of Netherlands on Ajax. You know, to have that core, it really helps a national team. Mm. And so they decided to, to sort of artificially arrange that. And um, they, they're sort of scouting around thinking, well, which team should we choose? And Ferenc Farish were by far the biggest team, but they were seen as being quite right-wing and quite nationalistic, which is sort of semi-true, but and also they were seen as being German, which was you know, a much bigger problem. And so they sort of deliberately get run down. You know, they, they were seen as being sort of a potential locus for dissent against the communist state. Um, so they're taken over by, a, I think, a catering trade union. But you know, anyway, not the secret police, not the army, who are the big two. And so MTK get taken over by the secret police. They get renamed Vosloburgo, which means Red Banner. And and they sort of, they become a big team again, but never quite with the same intellectual heft that they once had. And Honvard, uh, who had been Kishpest, which is a, a sort of village on the outskirts of, I mean, it's now fully part of Budapest, but at the time was was a village on the outskirts of Budapest. They, you know, they sort of fitted the bill ideally as this sort of empty shell that, that you know a, a major team could be built out of, uh, partly because they're a pre-existing team with a you know, a decent tradition, but but not not too strong a tradition. You know they're not going to kick off about being taken over, uh, but also they had two brilliant young players in Ferenc Puskas and Josef Boschik, and so they get made the army club. Honved means, I mean it means it's a, it's the word for the rank of private in the army, but also so it means defender of the motherland. It's got a, it's got a slightly more resonant uh, connotation than private. And so the, the best players are essentially conscripted into the army and sent there. Some of them play for Varish Lubogo because they, they realise that Honvard needs some kind of opposition. And uh, Gustav Shebesh, who had been a decent player, he, you know, he'd been a coach. You know, I tell the story in, in the book about uh, yeah, he becomes coach uh, because he, you know, he's the, the senior player at, at Weepest, was it? I think at Weepest, when the, 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 you know, the coach has a stroke while he's taking training. He has to just take over from him. And from that, he becomes a coach. Uh, and and you, you talk to people who played for him, you talk to other people around the game. And I think the general acceptance is he was a great organiser. He was a great manager in the sense of management, not necessarily of coaching. And that tactically, he was a bit 
basic, but he was smart enough to A, appoint the right people to help him and B, to manage upwards with all the various communist committees and, and all that sort of nonsense. And so the team he puts together is is phenomenally good. And they they win the Olympics in 52 in, in Helsinki. And that's part of a four-year unbeaten run in which they beat England twice, which are, you know, enormous. Uh, you know, the, 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 the impact for England was enormous. The impact for Hungary was enormous because England still had this sort of, this great cash and this great reputation. And to go to Wembley, to go to the Empire Stadium and absolutely playing off a park, was a great propaganda key for communism, even as the Hungarian state's going through this post-Stalinist paroxysm um, and you know, trying to work out its you know its new role. And then 54, they beat England 7-1 in Budapest, which confirms what happened at Wembley. It wasn't a fluke. And you know, the, the stories by that game of you're well over 100,000 fans cramming in and people with tickets taking carrier pigeons with them to, to send the tickets back to people outside so they could use them again over a million applied or something I think. yeah something like that it was yeah it was, i think it was over 10 to 1 yeah. you know, applied to tammy tickets available yeah uh and then the world cup they they beat brazil in a in a really violent bloody game in 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 Bern. It becomes known as the battle of Bern. uh then they play uruguay in the semi-final and uruguay you yeah, won the only two world cups yeah they never lost in the world cup they never lost a world cup game this is the first time they lose and it's still a really, really good side. And it, it, it's a brilliant game of football. The highlights are on YouTube. Uh, There's about half an hour of highlights. And, and if you if you look back at old, you know, old copies of World Soccer and things, up until Italy 3, Brazil 2 in 1982, this game is the game everybody talks about as the greatest game of all time. And Hungary win it. And it is a brilliant game. You know, it's just, it's, obviously, it's a bit slower than the modern game. But you can watch it on YouTube now. The direction's a little bit off, off, um, off-putting. It's, it's three different cameras sliced together the film and the different qualities of film and the the angles are different so you, you do have to sort of engage your brain quite a lot but you can still see it's a it's a brilliant game of football and and then they play West Germany in the final and they'd already beaten West Germany 8-3 in the group stage and Pushkas he'd been injured in that game and he hadn't played against Brazil or Uruguay he comes back probably wasn't fully fit but you know how do you leave Pushkas out if he, if he wants to play they go 2-0 up and then they get pegged back and they lose it 3-2. And in the last minute, Pushkas thinks he's equalised and Bill Ling, the Welsh linesman, rules it out for offside. The footage, it might be offside, it might not, you just can't tell. The, the, the angle's not good enough to tell. It's close is all you can say. Mm. Yeah, Hungarians will insist this was sort of British revenge for the humiliation inflicted on England. Although why a Welshman would do that, I've no idea. It's a decision that went against them, yeah, and it it was tight. But you can't you can't definitively say it was wrong from the footage that exists, and this causes this this uproar back in Budapest. You know, nobody thought it was possible they could lose, and there's all kinds of stories of skullduggery that yeah, the, apparently the Swiss Brass Band Championship was on that weekend, and, and they were all sort of practicing in the streets outside the Hungarian hotel that night, and the stories about the Hungarian coach not being able to get to the ground and having to sort of fight through the the players are going to fight through crowds to get there. And like, who knows how true any of it is and or how true kind of, you know, even, even if it is true, whether it was conspiracy or whether it was just sort of ineptitude. But yeah, the fact is they lost against a much a much inferior side. Um, but this causes this, this sort of mass outpouring of anger in, in Budapest. People take to the streets. When the team goes back, they, they, they can't go back to Budapest straight away. They go to Tadabanya in the north. 
and, and the yeah the theory is that this this sort of these street protests this this sort of spontaneous outburst of of frustration is what persuades people actually you know if we get enough people on the streets the communists can't do anything about it uh, and so by 56 when the political situation has become much fraughter and there's this you're warring factions within the communist party someone to liberalize someone to, to remain hardline Stalinist under, under Akushi yeah the, the, this leads to the uprising and the uprising is what what sort of kills off Hungarian football. So you've had MTK and Franz Varos for two sort of breeding grounds of Hungarian football, both in terms of play development and in terms of, of thought. They've both, you know, one by the fascists, one by the communists, they've been sort of ripped up by the roots. And and so there's no new generation coming through. But the existing generation is taken out by the, by the, by the uprising because Honved were, they were in Brussels waiting to go to Bilbao to play European Cup tie. And a load of them never went home or went home very much later. But Pushkas never goes home. Koshtis never goes home. And uh, Sibor never goes home. You'd already had Kubala had defected in 40, 48 or 49. Not related to this, but you know, another defection. And also the under-21 team was at a tournament in Switzerland. And a load of them never went home. And MTK, they decided to go on a sort of fundraising tour and a load of them never went home. And then some empty car players join up with some hundred players and they go to Brazil on a money-making tour. And and so, you know, at a stroke, Hungary lost half its first team, the bulk of it on the 21 team. And the, the culture that produced those players has essentially disappeared. So it flickers on. And, you know, the, the team that, that goes to, to the World Cup in England in 66 is a decent team, Florian Albert, Whose statue stands outside Hans Fischer Stadium was clearly a brilliant footballer, but they weren't producing those players and anything like the same numbers. Even in '78, when they get to the World Cup, you know, they got Torishik and uh, Tibor Nilashi, who, who were you know, clearly very, very good players, but there's two of them, there's not 10 of them. Uh, and then '62, I think the '62 European Cup final is sort of like, um, like an elegy for the golden age of Hungarian football. Because you, the 62 European Cup final, Benfica beat Real Madrid 5-3. Benfica team is managed by Bela Gutmann. You know, the, one of the great Hungarian coaches. You know, he'd, he'd gone to Hakorak in, in 24, won the league with them in 25, gone on this tour down the eastern seaboard of, of South America with, with New York Hakorak. So one of the great figures, and he, he's there coaching Benfica to, to the European Cup for the second time. And then you've got the Real Madrid team that they beat, in which you have Pushkas. And it's also the sporting director who put that team together, although he'd left a few weeks earlier to go, I think, to Turin, was a guy called Emil Österreicher, who wasn't a player, but he was this sort of great sort of sporting director. And he, you know, also Hungarian Jew. And he'd, he'd hidden out in the uh, Dohani synagogue in Budapest during the war. And on New Year's Day, you say 44, it must have been, uh, the Gestapo had raided the, the synagogue and he'd fled literally in just a pair of pants and ran down the street and got away. Um, he, he, he'd been in a labour camp in Ukraine and somehow escaped that. And he, you know, he was just somebody who was very good at doing deals and he, you know, he managed to get himself his job at, at Real Madrid and it was him who'd bought a lot of the great players so he put together those deals. So, yeah, 62, you have, on the one hand, a great Hungarian coach and on the other hand, 
a team put together by a great Hungarian sporting director with their key player being a great Hungarian forward. Mm, yeah. When you were doing the research for the book, did you ever feel kind of a sense of wistfulness from Hungarian people you spoke to that they kind of had a future robbed from them almost by external circumstances? Um, yeah, sort of. I mean, especially older people. Um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a phrase in Hungarian which is, has been used for the title of a, of a book called Under the Belly of a Frog. So when things are as bad as they can get, you know, when things are at rock bottom, they're said to be under the belly of a frog. And, and so even by the 70s, this, this book comes out saying Hungarian football is under the belly of a frog. And the truth is it's never really got out from there. And, and the, the, the front cover of that book, I mean, it's a brilliant bit of um, design work. Honvéd uh, Stadium, I, I think the stadium's been redeveloped, so it wouldn't work now. But you, the the photograph on the front of the book is these two from it's from taking from behind these two old guys standing in in a graveyard, and you can see the the, the gravestones and the silhouettes of the gravestones, looking over at the pitch where Honda are playing, I, and and so that's the whole sort of from the seventies. That's been the whole, and maybe it's eighties that book actually. And yes, must probably early eighties, but but you know for, certainly post seventy eight World Cup, there's been that sense of of loss that it's it's gone. And I think younger generations of Hungarians are sort of what they're used to. They don't really kind of, they don't have, yeah, it's hard to have a wistfulness for something you never knew. Yeah. And so they can read back the history and watch the videos. And there's God knows how many books about the golden age of Hungarian football. Although actually not, not really pre-1945 until the last five years or so, because the communists discouraged people prying back before the communist era. Uh, so it's only recently that the historians have really got their teeth into that, uh, but there's been some brilliant work done, uh, which I, you know, I'm, those historians were very generous to me, um, and, and you know, we were able to share a lot of material. And yeah, there was a there's a very nice collegiate sense of we're all working to the same goal of improving knowledge about this this great age that people don't know enough about. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I, I think I think now, certainly among historians, certainly among people who've bothered to study it. Uh, so bothered to study it sounds really judgmental. Among people who, who, who've studied it, there's an acceptance that, that what had been seen as the golden age, the early 50s, is actually the... Twilight. Really, yeah, the twilight, the final flailing mm. of, uh, of of a golden age, which has really lasted since, uh, well, the end of the First World War, for all the political and economic upheaval. And you're hungry been to the World Cup final in 1938, when some very strange things happened. Um, when you know, when Brazil played Italy in the semi-final of the '38 World Cup, they suddenly dropped five players before the final, and then Hungary pick a very strange team for the final. Um, and there's all kinds of rumours to why that might have been, but you know, if your government is very right-wing and is desperately seeking an alliance with the the Axis powers against a fear of a Soviet takeover, it would explain perhaps why why certain pressures were applied. Yeah. And I guess, finally, uh, apologies if it's an overly simplistic question, but how would you characterise the football culture within Hungary um, during your travels through the country and through Budapest especially? And then also, how would you characterise Hungarian football's influence in terms of, you know, the modern game? Like, how, how high in the ladder do they stand? Well, okay, I'll answer the second question first. So, I, I think you can 
Well, that, no, I believe this firmly to be true. It's not making a case. I, this is what I believe to be true, that the two most influential clubs of all time are the Barcelona of sort of mid to late 90s, when you had the team that Cruyff had built, managed by Louis van Gaal, and on his coaching staff, you had Mourinho and Koeman, and in his team, you had Guardiola and Luis Enrique, and you know, slightly earlier, Gilles Lopetegui is there. You have you know, the, the De Beers are there. You know, there's this extraordinary collocation of, of coaching talent. You know, all of those people in Van Hal's team go on to coach at some level. And the only one that stands alongside that for influence is, I think, the MT car of around about 1919 to 1922. Wow. Uh, and obviously the reasons for the diaspora out of, that, out of those two clubs are very different. That it, you know, Barcelona and the diaspora is because these people are recognised as being geniuses in their field and are given the jobs. And, and are capable, and, you know, very much capable of doing the jobs. And the MT car side because they're forced to flee for political and economic reasons. And, and so... And this is a slightly bigger stretch, but if you look at the influence on Hungarian coaches over every country, every major football country, over Italy, over Germany, over France, over Yugoslavia, over Scandinavia, over Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, even indirectly over England because of Hungary's victory over England in '53, which makes England reconsider, hmm. you can make the case that Every World Cup winner after Uruguay in 1930 won the World Cup, having been in some way influenced by Hungary. So Italy 34 and 38, absolutely. You know, there were 60, 60 Hungarians coached in Serie A between its inception in 1928 and 1945. 60. Wow. Uruguay 950, we talked about that. West Germany 54, you had Schoffer, you had um, uh, Kushner. You had the Conrads, all hugely important in the development of German football. Brazil, 58. Again, we talked about Brazil, 62. We talked about England, 66. We talked about that. Brazil, 70. We talked about that. West Germany, 74. Argentina, 78. Italy again in 82. Uh, Argentina again in 86. West Germany again in 1990. All the major football countries have had this Hungarian influence and the only one, I guess, you might quibble about slightly is Spain. But even Spain, would Barcelona have been Barcelona if it hadn't been for Cabala? Would the Dutch influence over Barcelona have been as great if Dutch football hadn't been influenced by, partly by Jimmy Hogan, right back in 1912 when he went to Dordrecht, his first proper coaching job outside of England? And you know that, that lays the seeds for everything that follows. But also the work that... that uh, up advice did. Uh, I mean, advice wasn't there for very long, so maybe that is a bit more of a stretch. But 934 through to 2006, absolutely categorically, you can say all those football cultures that won the World Cup owe a significant part of their development to Hungary. As to the football culture in Hungary now, before you went to that, I, sh- I thought maybe the 2011 Champions League final when Man United lost uh, 3-1 to Barcelona it kind of reminds me slightly of the 5 uh, out of the 6-3 defeat because it's kind of like I remember when that game took place I've never seen a team be dismantled so thoroughly you know in a way that the scoreline was kind of almost flattered Manchester United in many ways 
And it seemed like it was the beginning, well, or at least kind of the early stages of a long dynasty, but in fact, it was the end. So it's kind of like... Yeah, okay, yeah. In, in that regard, that's absolutely true, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think... Um, yeah, no, you're, you're right in that regard. Uh, where, where it's very different is on the impact on the losing team, just because football is nowhere near as, as insular now. So you know, it wasn't that that suddenly provoked English football to go... Oh, hang on! We better change. You know, English football was already going through a process of change and was very open to foreign ideas. So, uh, but yeah, in terms of th- this sort of defining performance that that yeah you think is you know, it raises the curtain on something and actually it's bringing the curtain down. Yeah, it, it is very similar. You're right, I, and obviously both games at Wembley as well. So yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the culture of football in Hungary now is, I mean, maybe it's 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 starting to improve and that's not, not not necessarily a good thing in some ways uh the the, the president victor orban who's a pretty horrific figure uh you're very anti-immigrant very nationalistic he you know pretty openly anti-semitic uh you know has, has closed loads of newspapers really cracked down the free press you know authoritarian um so so he's he's yeah a, a, an awful figure but uh, he he does love football, and he played five aside. Uh, maybe still plays five aside, and a lot of his cabinet played in the same five aside team as him. He's built a stadium in his home village. Uh, he's invested quite a lot of money in, in an academy, and he definitely, I guess, for for propaganda reasons, for the the symbolic reasons of nationalism, is keen to promote Hungarian football. And I, I think you can start to see uh, the impact of that in Hungary getting to the Euros in 2016, having not been at a tournament since 86, I think. it's Yeah, since 86. If you look at, at how they're going in the Nations League now, um, yeah, there, there was, I, th- I, think that, I think they're level B. And I think they're second in the league at the moment, which is... Yeah, it's not brilliant, but it's a lot better than it has been. Uh, and and yeah, they they will host games. Well, of a schedule to host games at the Euros, and the the three to the last, you know, the final stage of the playoffs. Um, so there there are little flickers of improvement, but it's probably improvement for the for the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting. It could be a podcast of its own, couldn't it? The uh, the influence of. Victor Orban over modern Hungarian football, but uh, but thank you very much, Jonathan, for that. It was really a very interesting insight into the historical significance of Hungarian football, especially with uh, Frank Varish's recent um, qualification for the group stage of the Champions League for the first time in quite a while. Uh, part two will deal with the circumstances around modern Hungarian football and the success of Frank Varish uh, specifically. But in the meantime, I would highly recommend you. Purchase the names heard long ago, how the golden age of Hungarian soccer shaped the modern game by Jonathan. It expounds on all the topics we discussed today, but in greater detail um, and with a very balanced uh, and erudite pen. So thank you very much, Jonathan. It's greatly appreciated for giving you uh, giving us your time today. Cheers. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. And uh, thank you to the listeners. I hope you tune in for part two and then for the next episode next week as well on a new topic for the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, I'm your host, Alan Feely. You can find me at Azul Feely on Twitter. Um, do you have any projects in the works, Jonathan? Or any books in the horizon? Um, 
not really. I've, I've got some some pictures. I'm knocking around publishers, but nothing nothing confirmed as yet. Cool, cool, cool. And of course, we can find you on Jonah Wills on Twitter, and then also your uh, editor of Blizzard and the Squall. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So, thank you again very much, Jonathan, and thank you, listeners, and we'll see you next week.